Chapters fifteen and sixteen of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Orsi. Chapter fifteen. Detected. The opening and shutting of the door roused them both from their dreams. Anne Mier, pale, trembling, with eyes looking wild and terrified, had glided into the room. Deroulade had sprung to his feet. In a moment he had thrust his own happiness into the background at sight of the poor child's obvious suffering. He went quickly towards her, and would have spoken to her, but she run past him up to Madame Deroulade, as if she were beside herself with some unexplainable terror. "'And Mier,' he said firmly, "'what is it? Have those devils dared?' In a moment reality had come rushing back upon him with full force, and bitter reproaches surged up in his heart against himself, for having in this moment of selfish joy forgotten those who looked up to him for help and protection. He knew the temper of the brutes who had been set upon his track, knew that low-minded Merlin in his noisome ways, and blamed himself severely for having left Anne Mier and Patronel alone with him even for a few moments. But Anne Mier quickly reassured him. They have not molested us much, she said, speaking with a visible effort and enforced calmness. Patronel and I were together, and they made us open all the cupboards and uncover all the dishes. Then they asked us many questions. Questions? Of what kind? asked Deroulade. About you, Paul, replied Anne Mie, and about Maman, and also about about the citizeness, your guest. Deroulade looked at her closely, vaguely wondering at the strange attitude of the child. She was evidently laboring under some strong excitement and in her thin, brown little hand she was clutching a piece of paper. "'Anne Mier, child,' he said very gently, "'you seem quite upset, as if something terrible had happened. What is that paper you are holding, my dear?' Anne Mie gazed down upon it. She was obviously making frantic efforts to maintain her self-possession. Juliet, at first sight of Anne Mie, seemed literally to have been turned to stone. She sat upright, rigid as a statue, her eyes fixed upon the poor, crippled girl, as if upon an inexorable judge about to pronounce sentence upon her of life or death instinct that keen sense of coming danger which nature sometimes gives to her elect had told her that within the next few seconds her doom would be sealed that fate would descend upon her holding the sword of nemesis and it was Mier's tiny half-shrivelled hand which had placed that sword into the grasp of fate what is that paper will you let me see it Mier? repeated deroulade citizen merlin gave it to me just now began Mier more quietly he seems very wroth at finding nothing compromising against you paul they were a long time in the kitchen and now they have gone to search my room in patronel's but merlin oh that awful man he seemed like a beast infuriated with his disappointment yes yes i don't know what he hoped to get out of me for i told him that you never spoke to your mother or to me about your political business and that i was not in the habit of listening at the keyholes yes and then he began to speak of-of our guest but of course there again i could tell him nothing he seemed to be puzzled as to who had denounced you he spoke about an anonymous denunciation which reached the public prosecutor early this morning it was written on a scrap of paper and thrown into the public box it seems and it is indeed very strange said deroulade musing over this extraordinary occurrence and still more over anne Mie's strange excitement in the telling of it i never knew i had a hidden enemy i wonder if i shall ever find out that is just what i said to citizen merlin rejoined anne Mie. what that i wondered if you or or any of us who love you will ever find out who your hidden enemy might be it was a mistake to talk so fully with such a brute little one i didn't say much and i thought it wisest to humour him as he seemed to wish to talk on that subject well and what did he say he laughed and asked me if i would very much like to know 
"'I hope you said no, Anne-Mie.' "'Indeed, indeed, I said yes,' she retorted with sudden energy, her eyes fixed now upon Juliette, who still sat rigid and silent, watching every movement of Anne-Mie from the moment in which she began to tell her story. "'Would I not wish to know who is your enemy, Paul? Creature who was base and treacherous enough to attempt to deliver you into the hands of those merciless villains? What wrong had you done to any one?' "'Shh! Hush, Anne-Mie, you are too excited.' he said, smiling now, in spite of himself, at the young girl's vehemence over what he thought was but a trifle, the discovery of his own enemy. "'I am sorry, Paul. How can I help being excited?' rejoined Anne with quaint, pathetic gentleness. "'When I speak of such base treachery as that which Merlin has suggested—' "'Well, and what did he suggest?' "'He did more than suggest,' whispered Anne almost inaudibly. "'He gave me this paper.' the anonymous denunciation which reached the public prosecutor this morning he thought one of us might recognize the handwriting then she paused some five steps away from deroulade holding out towards him the crumpled paper which up to now she had clutched determinedly in her hand deroulade was about to take it from her and just before he had turned to do so his eyes lighted on juliette she said nothing she had merely risen instinctively and had reached Annie's side in less than the fraction of a second it was all a flash, and there was dead silence in the room, but in that one hundredth part of a second Deroulade had read guilt in the face of Juliet. It was nothing but instinct, a sudden, awful, unexplainable revelation. Her soul seemed suddenly to stand before him, in all its misery and in all its sin. It was as if the fire from heaven had descended in one terrific crash, bearing beneath its devastating flames his ideals, his happiness, and his divinity. She was no longer there. His Madonna had ceased to be. There stood before him a beautiful woman, on whom he had lavished all the pent-up treasures of his love, whom he had succoured, sheltered, and protected, and who had repaid him thus. She had forced an entry into his house, she had spied upon him, dogged him, lied to him. The moment was too sudden, too awful for him to make even a wild guess at her motives. His entire life, his whole past, the present and the future, were all blotted out in this awful dispersal of his most cherished dream. He had forgotten everything else save her appalling treachery. How could he even remember that once, long ago, in fair fight, he had killed her brother? She did not even try now to hide her guilt. A look of appeal, touching in its trustfulness, went out to him, begging him to spare her further shame. Perhaps she felt that love, such as his, could not be killed in a flash. His entire nature was full of pity, and to that pity she made a final appeal, lest she should be humiliated before Madame de Irlade and Anne and he, still under the spell of those magic moments when he had knelt at her feet, understood her prayer, and closing his eyes, just for one brief moment in order to shut out forever that radiant vision of a pure angel whom he had worshipped, turned quietly to Anne "'Give me that paper, Anne he said coldly. "'I may perhaps recognize the handwriting of my most bitter enemy.' "'Tis unnecessary now,' replied Anne slowly still gazing at the face of Juliet, in which she, too, had read what she wished to read. The paper dropped out of her hand. Deroulade stooped to pick it up. He unfolded it, smoothed it out, and then saw that it was blank. "'There is nothing written on this paper,' he said mechanically. "'No,' rejoined Anne-Mie. "'No other words save the story of her treachery. "'What you have done is evil and wicked, Anne-Mie. "'Perhaps so, but I had guessed the truth, and I wished to know. "'God showed me this way how to do it and how to let you know as well.' The less you speak of God just now, Anne the better, I think. Will you attend to Maman? She seems faint and ill. Madame Deroulade, silent and placid in her armchair, had watched the tragic scene before her, almost like a disinterested spectator. 
all her ideas and all her thoughts had been paralyzed since the moment when the first summons at the front door had warned her of the imminence of the peril to her son the final discovery of juliet's treachery had left her impassive since her son was endangered she cared little as to whence that danger had come obedient to deroulade's wish anne mie was attending to the old lady's comforts the poor crippled girl was already feeling the terrible reaction of her deed in her childish mind she had planned this way in which to bring the traitor to shame anne mie knew nothing cared nothing about the motives which had actuated juliet all she knew was that a terrible judas-like deed had been perpetuated against the man on whom she herself had lavished her pathetic hopeless love all the pent-up jealousy which had tortured her for the past three weeks rose up and goaded her into unmasking her rival never for a moment did she doubt juliet's guilt the god of love may be blind tradition has so decreed it but the demon of jealousy has a hundred eyes more keen than those of the lynx anne mie pushed aside by merlin's men when they forced their way into deroulade's study had nevertheless followed them to the door when the curtains were drawn aside and the room filled with light she had seen juliet enthroned apparently calm and placid upon the sofa it was instinct the instinct born of her own rejected passion which caused her to read in the beautiful girl's face all that lay hidden behind the pale and passive mask that same second sight made her understand merlin's hints and allusions she caught every inflection of his voice heard everything saw everything and in the midst of her anxiety and her terrors for the man she loved there was the wild primitive intensely human joy at the thought of bringing that enthroned idol who had stolen his love down to earth at last anne mie was not clever she was simple and childish with no complexity of passions or devious ways of intellect it was her elemental jealousy which had suggested the cunning plan for the unmasking of juliet she would make the girl cringe and fear threaten her with discovery and through her very terror shame her before paul deroulade and now it was all done it had all occurred as she had planned it paul knew that his love had been wasted upon a liar and a traitor and juliet stood pale humiliated a veritable wreck of shamed humanity Amie had triumphed, and was profoundly, abjectly wretched in her triumph. Great sobs seemed to tear at her very heartstrings. She had pulled down Paul's idol from her pedestal, but the one look she had cast at his face had shown her that she had also wrecked his life. He seemed almost old now. The earnest, restless gaze had gone from his eyes. He was staring mutely before him, twisting between nerveless fingers that blank scrap of paper, which had been the means of annihilating his dream all energy of attitude all strength of bearing which were his chief characteristics seemed to have gone there was a look of complete blankness of hopelessness in his listless gesture how he loved her sighed anne mie as she tenderly wrapped the shawl round madame deroulade's shoulders juliette had said nothing it seemed as if her very life had gone out of her she was a mere statue now her mind numb her heart dead her very existence a fragile piece of mechanism but she was looking at deroulade that one sense in her had remained alive her sight she looked and looked and saw every passing sign of mental agony in his face the look of recognition of her guilt the bewilderment at the appalling crash and now that hideous death-like emptiness of his soul and mind never once did she detect horror or loathing he had tried to save her from being further humiliated before his mother but there was no hatred or contempt in his eyes when he realized that she had been unmasked by a trick she looked and looked for there was no hope in her not even despair there was nothing in her mind nothing in her soul but a great pall-like blank then gradually as the minutes sped on she saw the strong soul within him make a sudden fight against the darkness of his despair 
the movement of the fingers became less listless the powerful energetic figure straightened itself out remembrance of other matters other interests than his own began to lift the overwhelming burden of his grief he remembered the letter-case containing the compromising papers a vague wonder arose in him as to juliet's motives in warding off through her concealment of it the inevitable moment of its discovery by merlin the thought that her entire being had undergone a change and that she now wished to save him never once entered his mind if it had he would have dismissed it as the outcome of maudlin sentimentality the conceit of the fop who believes his personality to be irresistible his own self-torturing humility pointed but to the one conclusion that she had fooled him all along fooled him when she sought his protection fooled him when she taught him to love her fooled him above all at the moment when subjugated by the intensity of his passion he had for one brief second ceased to worship in order to love when the bitter remembrance of that moment of sweetest folly rushed back to his aching brain then at last did he look up at her with one final agonized look of reproach so great so tender and yet so final that anne who saw it felt as if her own heart would break with the pity of it all but juliet had caught the look too the tension of her nerves seemed suddenly to relax memory rushed back upon her with tumultuous intensity very gradually her knees gave way beneath her and at last she knelt down on the floor before him her golden head bent under the burden of her guilt and her shame chapter sixteen under arrest Desrilles did not attempt to go to her only presently when the heavy footsteps of merlin and his men were once more heard upon the landing she quietly rose to her feet she had accomplished her act of humiliation and repentance there before them all she looked for the last time upon those whom she had so deeply wronged and in her heart spoke an eternal farewell to that great and mighty and holy love which she had called forth and then had so hopelessly crushed now she was ready for the atonement merlin had already swaggered into the room the long and arduous search throughout the house had not improved either his temper or his personal appearance he was more covered with grime than he had been before and his narrow forehead had almost disappeared beneath the tangled mass of his ill-kempt hair which he had perpetually tugged forward and roughed up in his angry impatience one look at his face had already told juliet what she wished to know he had searched her room and found the fragments of burnt paper which she had purposely left in the ash-pan how he would act now was the one thing of importance left for juliet to ponder over that she would not escape arrest and condemnation was at once made clear to her merlin's look of sneering contempt when he glanced towards her had told her that Deroulade himself had been conscious of a feeling of intense relief when the men re-entered the room the tension had become unendurable when he saw his dethroned madonna kneel in humiliation at his feet an overwhelming pain had wrenched his very heart-strings and yet he could not go to her the passionate human nature within him felt a certain proud exultation at seeing her there she was not above him now she was no longer akin to the angels he had given no further thought to his own immediate danger vaguely he guessed that merlin would find the leather case where it was he could not tell perhaps juliette herself had handed it to the soldiers she had only hidden it for a few moments out of impulse perhaps fearing lest at the first instant of its discovery merlin might betray her he remembered now those hints and insinuations which had gone out from the terrace to juliet whilst the search was being conducted in the study at the time he had merely looked upon these as a base attempt at insult and had tortured himself almost beyond bearing in the endeavour to refrain from punishing that evil-mouthed creature who dared to bandy words with his madonna but now he understood and felt his very soul writhing with shame at the remembrance of it all 
Oh, yes, the return of Merlin and his men. The presence of these grimy, degraded brutes was welcome now. He would have wished to crowd in the entire world, the universe and its population, between him and his fallen idol. Merlin's manner towards him had lost nothing of its ironical benevolence. There was even a touch of obsequiousness apparent in the ugly face, as a representative of the people approached the popular citizen deputy. "'Citizen deputy,' began Merlin, "'I have to bring you the welcome news. We have found nothing in your house that in any way can cast suspicion upon your loyalty to the Republic. My orders, however, were to bring you before the Committee of Public Safety, whether I had found proofs of your guilt or not. I have found none.' He was watching Deroulet keenly, hoping even at this eleventh hour to detect a look or a sign which would furnish him with the proofs for which he was seeking. The slightest suggestion of relief on Deroulet's part, a sigh of satisfaction, would have been sufficient at this moment, to convince him and the Committee of Public Safety that the citizen deputy was guilty after all. But Deroulet never moved. He was sufficiently master of himself not to express either surprise or satisfaction. Yet he felt both, satisfaction not for his own safety, but because of his mother and Anne whom he would immediately send out of the country, out of all danger, and also because of her, of Juliette Marny, his guest, who, whatever she may have done against him, had still a claim on his protection. His feeling of surprise was less keen and quite transient. Merlin had not found the latter case. Juliet, stricken with tardy remorse, perhaps, had succeeded in concealing it. The matter had practically ceased to interest him. It was equally galling to owe his betrayal, or his ultimate safety, to her. He kissed his mother tenderly, bidding her good-bye, and pressed Anne Mie's timid little hand warmly between his own. He did what he could to reassure them, but for their own sakes he dared say nothing before Merlin, as to his plans for their safety. After that he was ready to follow the soldiers. As he passed close to Juliette he bowed, and almost inaudibly whispered, Adieu. She heard the whisper, but did not respond. Her look alone gave him the reply to his eternal farewell. His footsteps and those of his escort were heard echoing down the staircase, then the hall door to open and shut. Through the open window came the sound of hoarse cheering as the popular citizen deputy appeared in the street. Merlin, with two men beside him, remained under the portico. He told off the other two to escort Deroulet as far as the Hall of Justice, where sat the members of the Committee of Public Safety. The terrorist had a vague fear that the citizen deputy would speak to the mob. An unruly crowd of women had evidently been awaiting his appearance. The news had quickly spread along the streets that Merlin, Merlin himself, the ardent, bloodthirsty Jacobin, had made a descent upon Paul Deroulet's house, escorted by four soldiers. Such an indignity, put upon the man they most trusted in the entire assembly of the convention, had greatly incensed the crowd. The women jeered at the soldiers as soon as they appeared, and Merlin dared not actually forbid Deroulet to speak. "'A la lantienne, vieux cretin!' shouted one of the women, thrusting her fist under Merlin's nose. "'Give the word, citizen deputy,' rejoined another, "'and we'll break his ugly face. "'Nous lui cassons la gueule! "'A la lantane! "'A la lantane!' One word from Deroulet now would have caused an open riot, and in those days self-defense against the mob was construed into enmity against the people. Merlin's work, too, was not yet accomplished. He had no intention of escorting Deroulet himself. He had still important business to transact inside the house which he had just quitted, and had merely wished to get the citizen deputy well out of the way before he went upstairs again. Moreover, he had expected something of a riot in the streets. The temper of the people of Paris was at fever heat just now. The hatred of the populace against a certain class, and against certain individuals, was only equaled by their enthusiasm in favour of others. They had worshipped Marat for his squalor and his vices. 
They worshipped Danton for his energy, and Robespierre for his calm. They worshipped Déroulède for his voice, his gentleness and his pity, for his care of their children and the eloquence of his speech. It was that eloquence which Merlin feared now, but he little knew the type of man he had to deal with. Déroulède's influence over the most unruly, the most vicious populace the history of the world has ever known, was not obtained through fanning its passions. That popularity, though brilliant, is always ephemeral. The passions of a mob will invariably turn against those who have helped to rouse them. Marat did not live to see the waning of his star. Danton was dragged to the guillotine by those whom he had taught to look upon the instrument of death as the only possible and unanswerable political argument. Robespierre succumbed to the orgies of bloodshed he himself had brought about. But Déroulède remained master of the people of Paris for as long as he chose to exert that mastery. When they listened to him they felt better, nobler, less hopelessly degraded. He kept up in their poor, misguided hearts that last flickering sense of manhood which their bloodthirsty tyrants, under the guise of fraternity and equality, were doing their best to smother. Even now, when he might have turned the temper of the small crowd outside his door to his own advantage, he preferred to say nothing. He even pacified them with a gesture. He well knew that those whom he incited against Merlin now would, once their blood was up, probably turn against him in less than half an hour. Merlin, who all along had meant to return to the house, took his opportunity now. He allowed Déroulède and the two men to go on ahead, and beat a hasty retreat back into the house, followed by the jeers of the women. "'A la lanterne, vieux cretin!' they shouted as soon as the hall door was once more closed in their faces. A few of them began hammering against the door with their fists. Then they realized that their special favorite, Citizen Deputy Déroulède, was marching along between two soldiers as if he were a prisoner. The word went round that he was under arrest and was being taken to the Hall of Justice, a prisoner. This was not to be. The mob of Paris had been taught that it was the master in the city, and it had learned its lesson well. For the moment it had chosen to take Paul Déroulède under its special protection, as a guard of honour to him, the women in ragged curls, the men with bare legs and stripped to the waist, the children all yelling, hooting, and shrieking, followed him to see that none dared harm him. End chapters 15 and 16